Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 2nd, 2018. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Jerry Longman of the New York Times and ESPN's Carol Lawson to discuss Notre Dame's crazily dramatic win over Mississippi State in the women's tournament. We'll also talk about the hockey phenomenon of the emergency backup goalie, one of whom, a 36-year-old accountant named Scott Foster, just took the ice for the Chicago Blackhawks. And finally, the week after the death of Linda Brown of Brown v. Board of Education fame, we'll be joined by Jack Alexander and Bill Bunton to talk about playing basketball in Kansas in the 1940s when Topeka High School had separate teams for black and white students. Joining me in our studio in beautiful Washington, D.C., mere blocks away from the Renwick Gallery, which is currently putting on a Burning Man exhibition that I'm a little bit wary of. It is Stefan Fatsis, the author of several extremely high-quality books. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Why are you wary? Just a little bit wary of the Renwick-Burning Man combo. I thought you were going to say just a few blocks from the Supreme Court, which handed up the Brown versus Board of Education ruling. I'm feeling about, like, sw- I wanted to switch up the, like, intro banter a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll be mere blocks away from lots of different places. Mere blocks away from Chipotle, for example. I don't know. Maybe a new uh, new location could every be, week. Could be a great feature. <laughs> Thank you for the support, Stefan. I really appreciate it. Um, as listeners may have noticed from the rundown at the top of the show, we're not going to talk about uh, the men's Final Four. It's one of those occasions where we're recording on a Monday morning, which means that our podcast will be instantly outdated. Um, you'll hear it probably after uh, the men's championship game. So uh, there might be a little bit of a mention of Villanova coming up, but otherwise we're going to focus on the uh, women. Stefan, what do you got for us? Well, as you said, Josh, we are taping this before the men's final between Michigan and Villanova on Monday night. But to top the women's final four, that game is going to need like four overtimes, a couple of half-court shots, a 94-foot game winner, and mana falling from the rafters of the Alamo Dome because the women's final four might have been the most riveting final four ever. In the semifinals, Mississippi State needed overtime to beat Louisville and Notre Dame needed overtime and a last-second shot by Erika Agunbowale to take down Mighty Connecticut. And then on Sunday night, Agunbowale did it again, sinking a frantic off-balance, falling out-of-bounds three at the buzzer to win the championship by a score of 61-58. to Our first guest is esteemed New York Times sports writer Jerry Longman, who witnessed all of this in Columbus, Ohio. It is great to have you join us, Jerry. Thanks. 
Great to be here. Dree, the more I watch the replay of Ogumbawale's shot, the less I believe it actually happened. She, she has to fight through two defenders, catch on the run, shoot while basically moving parallel to the basket. It strains credulity that it happened. What was it like watching it up close? Well, I actually wasn't so up close. I was in the complete sort of opposite <laughs> diagonal of the court. But, oh, no. um, you know, Muffet McGraw, the Notre Dame coach, says that same exact thing. She couldn't believe it went in. Enrique, who's known as Rico uh, to her um, teammates, probably not after the racketeering statute, but I'm hoping after the uncle in uh, Napoleon Dynamite, um, she... She says that she thought she was actually squared up when she shot, even though she was falling towards the baseline afterwards. But, but it didn't look like she was squared away. And uh, Mississippi State, Mississippi State had a foul to give. They could have fouled her and then, you know, um, stopped the shot. But they claimed they couldn't get to her. They tried to to deny her the ball. They switched on defense, so she was left wide open. And you know, two quick dribbles. Nobody basically in her face. It was just an amazing shot. And she is she is the type of player who she's not very expansive when she describes what she does. I think she's just so intensely concentrating that um, that she can't really describe it afterwards. As, as a matter of fact, they played Notre Dame. They, Notre Dame played Connecticut in December, and she can't even re- remember that game. <laughs> She's not one of these players who has a uh, photographic memory for everything she's ever no, done. No, I can I relate can. to that because I can't remember anything <laughs> I did in December either. Um, she was 6 for 21 from the floor in the game, which kind of put another layer to when Kobe Bryant tweeted at her after the game, Mamba mentality, which was very telling because Kobe Bryant, the only way you can compliment another player is to say that he, uh, that, that he or she – reminds uh, him of himself. Um, but right. it was like the Kobe Bryant 6-for-24 Game 7 against the Celtics. You know, you got to take that last shot, even if you're having a, a bad game. But, you know, Stefan, I stand by, you know, everything you said about this being a great Final Four, but that final game was kind of a rough watch for a long time. It was redeemed by that final shot, but it wasn't like the Notre Dame-UConn semi where it was just great the whole time. I mean, Notre Dame didn't score for more than 10 minutes uh, in the first half. They They scored three points in the second quarter. Yeah, they scored three points over a total of 14 minutes. I mean, Jerry, would you agree with that statement that it wasn't really a great game that was just redeemed by the final play? Sort of. But you're right. You're right about Enrique. She was one for 10 in the first half. And until the final two minutes of the game, uh, Notre Dame had not even hit a three-point shot. So. But, but I always find in these championship games, especially when you're at, in the arena, that the, kind of the, the struggle becomes a kind of beauty. Um, that um, They are fascinating to watch, even though you know, it's not an elegant game. Beauty is definitely in the eye of the beholder, because I did not find that to be a beautiful game. And I, No, but I think you're right that being in the arena, you get sucked into the drama and the tension. And there was definitely, no matter where, how you were watching, huge drama and tension in the last two minutes of the game. Yes, and I mean, that's, and that's the thing about Notre Dame. They, you know, they, have some, they have some elegant players, and they, do, they have some really uh, 
you know, muscular, just sort of charging ahead kind of players in there. Just the kind of there's a, just a relentlessness about Notre Dame that you can, you can that I only see I would say in UConn otherwise. But they just keep. I mean, they're like tax time. They're just inevitably they're coming, they're coming, and um, they just you know they just don't stop. Yeah, Notre Dame was trailing by forty to twenty-five in the third quarter. They went on a sixteen to one run to take the lead, setting up. A crazy final sequence. Mississippi State was ahead by five. They gave up a three and then a two, and then they missed the layup to go ahead. And then there was a scramble for the ball after a steal. Mississippi State's coach, Vic Schaefer, took the blame. He said, you're up five with 140. It's my job to get them home, and I didn't get them home. I'll wear that maybe for the rest of my career. What I didn't hear Schaefer do is criticize the refs, which he could have Uh, With Notre Dame playing for a last shot, Mississippi State stole the ball. There were 10 seconds to go. Morgan William, the the, the point guard who made the heroic shot to win uh, last year's semifinal against Connecticut, dribbling up the court, looking for their star, Victoria Vivians, ahead of the field. The ball gets knocked away with seven to play, and it sure looked like that could have been whistled. Yeah, you know, they were, I mean, they were obviously devastated having lost for a second consecutive time in the championship game, but they were very gracious afterwards. I mean, I asked Morgan, you know, was that a foul? And she goes, you know, there was no whistle, so there was no foul. And and um, Schaefer just said, look, it was a bang-bang play. He didn't complain. So they they were very gracious. Well, that's another way in which Ogunbowale's final shot redeemed the game, right? Our conversation today would have been about that no call kind of primarily, I think, if not for that late shot. I mean, that was definitely a foul. I don't think we need to <laughs> pussyfoot around it. I mean, she got body slammed, basically. And, you know, McCown, the six seven player for Mississippi State, I mean, the layup that she missed with 25 seconds to go, I mean, it was point-blank range. I mean, not to be like a dumb sports commentator and be like, you can't miss that, but just like that kind of brings home how devastating this loss must be for Mississippi State. I mean, how many different ways you can rationalize that they would have or could have um, or should have won this game? Yeah, she, uh, you know, I felt bad for Tierra McCowan. I mean, she, um, she's come a long way as a player. And in the in the semifinal, she had 21 points and 25 rebounds, the most ever in a in a Final Four. I think she's the greatest rebounder in the history of the women's tournament. But, it, yeah, it's got to be gutting just to – to miss that kind of point blank shot because uh, she was she was wide open. I mean, it was basically a layup drill. It's um, it's too bad. You know, Mississippi State had never won a team championship in its 133 year history. Um, you know, a few years ago when Morgan William got there for her recruiting visit, she said she sat courtside for a game because there was only a few hundred people there. And I, one of the assistant athletic directors, told me last night that he had been there for 18 years and said he had been to home football games against Alabama, home men's basketball games at Kentucky. But there has never been a tougher ticket at Mississippi State than trying to get into the women's basketball games hmm. late in the season. Some some people are showing up. You know, there's ticket scalping going on. Some people are showing up four hours ahead of time to try to get the few general admission seats. So it would have actually would have been a really good story if they had won. Yeah, I mean, that was the second Final Four team. The men made the Final Four in 1996 with that crazy team with Dante Jones. They did, yes. Yeah. Um, but again, they lost uh, to Syracuse in the, in the semifinal. Um, there was a lot of criticism earlier in the tournament, Dree, about, you know, as there is every year, about the lopsidedness of women's college hoops, particularly after Connecticut won its first round game by 88 points. Um, 
the final four, I felt like kind of should help casual fans or fans that aren't predisposed to criticizing women's basketball and women's sports more broadly of that notion. I mean, these were incredibly well-matched games that indicate that UConn is not um, so far ahead of everybody else in recruiting and competing. Let me jump in here uh, before um, Jury speaks up, just because the thing that I find really interesting is that even the practitioners of the sport see basically every big game in women's basketball as a referendum on women's basketball. Like McGraw said, phenomenal for women's basketball. And it's like they're having the same conversation that people outside the sport are having. And I feel like we shouldn't be having that conversation. This sort of says, look, these are just great games. Um, Yeah, and I would say that, you know, when, you know, Butler shoots however, like whatever awful percentage Butler shot in the championship game, that time, it's not like, oh, man, men, men's basketball really stinks. Uh, the, the, there's, a, there's a bad game, just like sometimes games are, are better than the others. But I would say the difference this year is that with Villanova being on the run they're on and shooting more than 43s in the Final Four, I feel like we are getting a little bit of a taste of that in the men's tournament this year of like, is the game changing? Is this good for the game? Is, you know, uh, it, it feels like kind of there's some parallelism this year where there hasn't been in the past. Yeah, so in the women's game, you know, this happens a lot, especially in a lot of women's team sports. They're just not afforded. Maybe it's the new media age we're in or, or just plain sexism, I don't know. But women are not afforded a chance to proceed along the same arc that men have. So the men's tournament began in 1939, the women not until 1982. The, the NCAA didn't even give the women a tournament until a full decade after the passage of Title IX. So UCLA won 10 titles in the first 37 years. UConn won 11. So they are developing almost on the same exact arc. There were just as many blowouts in the men's tournament through the years as as, as the women. I mean, uh, the year that Loyola of Chicago won in 1963, it beat its first opponent 111 to 42. Uh, I mean, UCLA in those days won, you know, they beat Houston in a regional, I mean, in the national semifinals 101 to 69. So the men have had these, you know, on their growth of the game, they had, they've had the same blowouts and, and um, you know, overwhelming advantages from of one team against the other that the women have. But I guess... For some reason, women are not afforded the same opportunity to sort of grow at that same yeah. pace. Yeah, and, and I think you're in a good position to talk about this, Jerry, because you've been sort of a pioneer in terms of covering women's sports seriously as women's sports, whether it's soccer or basketball. I mean, you've been doing this for 20-plus years. And I, But I think there's definitely, to your point, though, there, there is something going on. Right? So there is some change, some kind of equalizing going on. Because you see, you know, Tennessee was the eight-time national champion, has never been back to the Final Four since Pat Summit was forced to retire with early-onset Alzheimer's. Stanford, a two-time champion, has been eclipsed in many ways in the in the Pac-12 by Oregon, Oregon State, UCLA. So there's a, you know, there is, I mean, parity, there's not real parity across women's basketball, but there is a lot of change going on. There are some... Uh, you know, there were two uh, 11 seeds that made it to the round of, 
16. One of them was Buffalo, who recruited half the team, has, has international players. Uh, so, you know, some, there is some change going on, at least, you know, sort of right below the, that, that top tier, which I, I find interesting. And, I, and then the question now becomes, you know, is this an inflection point for UConn? Or are they are they going to be less dominant? Um, I mean, Gino is Oriama is 64. He's hinted that he'll coach till he's 70, but he won't be around forever. So, what does this mean? Does this mean that? And once he leaves UConn, I mean, they just won't. They can't sustain this. I don't think. Um, you know, once he's gone, just the way that UCLA couldn't after Wooden left. Uh, so it's it'll be fascinating in the next five or six years to see what happens. UConn's not going to be any less dominant, I think, for the next two or three or four years, or as you suggested, until Oriema retires. I mean, if you look at their returning roster, they've got Megan Walker, who is the number one recruit from 2017, who just didn't play that much this year. They have the number one recruit from 2018, Christian, uh, Kristen Williams, and they also have the number five recruit, Olivia Nelson Adota. Um, yeah, but I they they lost their best player in Gabby Williams, um, and they lost the defensive national player of the year in Kia Nurse, who often you know ran the team and settled it down. And so I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I agree that they will be the favorite next year. Um, but we'll see. I mean, if you know, if it gets to the point where they don't win three times in a row, that would be um, <laughs> really interesting and suggesting that that maybe the game is is moving in another another direction. Jerry Longman writes about sports for the New York Times. He covered the Final Four. Jerry, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And now we're thrilled to welcome to the show Carol Lawson, who called the Final Four for ESPN along with former UConn great Rebecca Lobo and play-by-play announcer Adam Amin. And before we talk to Kara, let's listen to the final call of the great shot by Notre Dame to win the national championship. Ogumbawale for the win! Good! Arike Ogumbawale wins the national championship for Notre Dame! All right, Kara, you are sitting there. You are watching this unfold. Your face kind of goes blank, and we know that because the video of the three of you has kind of gone viral. What is going through your mind in a situation like that? Well, fortunately, we, we had, our, had just had a situation on Friday or a similar situation. And then last year uh, when I was on the call with Dave O'Brien and Doris Burke, uh, we had a buzzer beater uh, in the national semifinal, um, so uh, it's it's kind of like playing. I I uh, compare it to being a player. Uh, the more you're in those situations, um, the more you're able to go back and reflect and and make sure that you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing as far as being an analyst, as far as the job. And for the scenario in the national championship game, as soon as the shot went in. And the buzzer went out, went off, and it looked to be simultaneous to me, but I wasn't sure. And the referees blew the whistle right after uh, it went in, amidst the celebration. And so the reason I didn't react is because I was trying to figure out what was going on, um, because I didn't know what they were going to go review or what they were talking about. Um, and so I'm trying to scan the court to see what's going to happen. 
because if there is something, we're going to have to explain it to the viewers who at home are probably going nuts in their living rooms uh, because of uh, of the shot. How well could you see the final shot by Agumbawale? Oh uh, yeah, I could see it really well. Uh, it, it was, was off in the corner, court. right? Yeah, it was off in the corner. It was across the court, but we're obviously center court right there, so there wasn't anybody blocking. Um, I, I thought they were going to try and go to their post player, Jessica Shepard, but they ended up not doing it. So I could see it pretty good. I saw the way she heaved it. It wasn't her, her normal shot. Um, <laughs> to say the least. And, yeah, it wasn't her normal um, you know, motion. And she put a ton of arc on it. Uh, I didn't think it was good or not good when, she, when it left her hand. Um, I just noticed that it was a little bit of a different motion than, than we normally see from Enrique. And uh, it went straight up and straight down. So when it went through the net, I, I mean, that was initially a little bit of a shock. In my intro, I neglected to supply your other credentials than being uh, an ESPN broadcaster. You played in the WNBA, of course, from 2003 to 15. You won an Olympic gold medal in 2008. And you played in three Final Fours for Tennessee and I don't mean this as a dig or anything, Kara, but you did not win a title. So I'm wondering whether you felt for Mississippi State in this situation and even maybe a little bit for UConn on Friday night. I always feel for the players. Uh, when, when you've been a player and you've experienced uh, the highs and lows of being one, I always feel um, that the joy for the players that win and uh, you know, the sorrow for the players that lose. Uh, you respect that when you when you've uh, put yourself on the line and been through that. And, you know, I was in that competitive environment for so many years, from when I was a kid to um, you know most of my most of my adult life. And so I understand um, all the work it takes to put in and, and all the work that those young players do. So I absolutely uh, can relate to to all the players uh, in the games that I do because I've been there and and have experienced it. Um. We got to do something about these replay reviews, Kara. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, at the end of the game, as you said, you have to be watching to see if the refs are going to put more time on the clock. They eventually did put a tenth of a second back. It kind of ruins the celebration a little bit yeah. if you got to go to the monitor for like five minutes to f- figure out if there's right. a tenth of a second or no, no time left. Yeah, I-, I thought it did kill the buzz there. Um, it would have just been a great clean moment, right? If the shot had gone in and, uh, you know, they, uh, they just let it go. Uh, or even the ones that we see sometimes where they go over and quick look at it to make sure it's good and then blow their whistle and count it yeah. um, pretty quickly. Yeah. This one went on a very long time. Yeah. And, um, and for no yeah, good reason, really, Kara, because yeah. a tenth of a second, you can't get up a three. Right under any circumstance, yeah, exactly. Like it's not even. Yeah, I wish the they would have would have just let it let it go. I think they're just trying to do their due diligence. Remember, they're being graded as well. Um, right. So I know that they're trying to check all their boxes because to call a national championship game is quite an honor for an official, and you know I'm sure they want to hope to do more in the future. So the last minute and a half of the title game was pretty frantic. Like mm-hmm. a bunch of of stuff happened. Notre Dame hit. A three to go within a couple points. There were turnovers. Um, but the one moment before the buzzer beater um, that was really crucial and decisive was when the referees, who you mentioned, are being graded very, very closely, did not call the foul on Notre Dame when it looked like Morgan William got kind of body blocked with under 10 seconds to go. Um, you guys 
did not really belabor that point. Um, but I was wondering if in the moment you were thinking about how hard a time am I going to give the reps here? Like how much of a big deal do do I make it that this was like a huge no call in this game? Yeah, uh, you know, I agree. I think it was a missed call. Uh, we we did mention it, uh, as you said, in the game. I think as far as what you're mentioning or what you're deciding to belabor in moments like that, uh, for me personally, it doesn't have anything to do about talking about the refs. I don't have a problem saying if they miss a call. Uh, but at that moment, there was so many bang-bang things that were happening. And what happened next um, after the missed call um, I thought was incredible uh, by McCowan, the Mississippi State player, uh, in fouling and saving a basket and in turn, at least at that point, saving the game for her team. Yeah. And in doing so, sacrificing her place in the game by fouling out. So when, things, when so many things happen uh, at one time and it's frantic, you have to make the decision of what you're going to, to emphasize and um you know that's that's what i chose to emphasize um and at that point remember agumbawale hasn't hit that shot so you don't have access to the information of the end of the game you don't know at that point that missing that call will lose mississippi state the game you just think it lost an opportunity for a shot akara you are known obviously for being a a, a great basketball player and having a sterling career, having done pretty much everything you can do in the sport and for calling these games most recently. But your new day job this year has been as a color commentator, the primary color commentator for the Washington Wizards of the NBA, which is fantastic. And congratulations on that. How is it toggling back and forth between the men and the women? And what have you learned about the two games in calling them sort of simultaneously during this season? Um, as far as the games and how they're different, uh, the, the NBA game, uh, no surprise, <laughs> uh, is, is faster uh, than the women's college game. And uh, that some of that is a function of obviously the athleticism of the guys. These guys are the best athletes in the world. But some of that is a function of the rules as well because they have a 24-second shot clock versus a 30-second shot clock. So what I've found, uh, pretty much like any endeavor, uh, the more reps you get, the better you become. And I've been getting reps at a faster pace uh, than college games. So for, play to, for a play to come about uh, and for uh, players to get into their sets or to be able to recognize action, I have to do that quicker uh, in an NBA game than I do in a college game. And what i found in doing so many NBA games is that my diagnostic capabilities have really gone through the roof because I'm able to uh, figure out what teams are doing uh, easier and quicker now. And when I go back to a college game, it's almost like it slows it slowed down, and I can really anticipate and forecast what I think is going to happen. One of the things that I thought was really cool on your broadcast on Sunday was that you guys showed the bus- behind-the-scenes footage of uh, Agumbawale finding out that she had gotten a tweet yeah. from Kobe and just being yeah. so excited. And for me, that was, it's, I don't know if you think of it as kind of like a double-edged sword. It's obviously like awesome when like NBA guys give respect for the women's game and validate these players. It obviously means a lot to them. But is it, um, 
don't know if if you see any downside in the fact that for some sports fans, it's like the women's game only gets validated if like men are saying that, oh, that was a great moment or, or that was cool. Like, do you perceive it that way at all? Yeah, I can see both sides of that for sure. Um, the thing about that I've been um, so uh, impressed about, and I don't even say impressed is probably the wrong adjective, um, it's in, interested in is uh, I'm around, you know, our guys all the time and they love women's basketball and they love talking about it or they'll watch games or they'll see me doing a game and they'll ask me about or they'll ask me what my next game is and things like that. So um, people within the basketball world, at least at the professional level, um, there's not a shock and all in the sense that, oh, you know, John Wall thinks this team is really good. I'm not super excited if he says that. We just have a basketball conversation about whatever it is, about whatever team it might be. And um, same thing. I mean, one of the one of the first people to text me after the uh, the game, the semifinal games, was was Ernie Grunfeld, our you know our team president, because he was watching the games. And I got a lot of texts from people from the Wizards uh, that who were just watching those games and um, just excited, you know, about the outcomes and um, excited about uh, what the how, how good the games were, the drama. You mean Kobe didn't uh, text you? Come on. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no text from Kobe. Uh, but uh, so I think, uh, but you have to remember, these, these kids in college, that's what they are. They're still kids, and they grew up, they grew up watching players, and, and they're really excited to, to actually meet them or get a chance to <clears throat> tweet at them. And so that, that part is, I looked at it like that more than anything. It was just a kid that grew up loving Kobe and – I mean, he tweeted, you know, he tweeted her, and that was that was a real cool moment. Kara Lawson is a basketball legend, a color analyst for women's basketball on ESPN, and a broadcast analyst for the Washington Wizards. Kara, thank you so much for joining us. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to the emergency backup goalie, it is time for a special announcement. We are going to have a bonus segment on today's podcast exclusively for Slate Plus members. Imagine that. An entire extra segment just for the select elite chosen ones. Spectacular. I should probably say what it's going to be about, and that is a couple of remarkable humans, soccer guy Zlatan Ibrahimovic and baseball guy Shohei Otani, made their debuts in the general vicinity of Los Angeles over the weekend, both to great success We will explain. We will discuss. If you want to hear, join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. That kind of rhymed. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. The Chicago Blackhawks have already been eliminated from contention for the NHL playoffs, but thank goodness they're still playing because they gave us the best moment of this or any other hockey season on Saturday night. During pregame warmups, Blackhawks goalkeeper Anton Forsberg got hurt and could not take the ice. 
Then during the game, Colin Delia went down with cramps in the third period. That left Chicago with no one to put in goal, save for a 36-year-old emergency backup goalkeeper named Scott Foster. When the NHL says someone is an emergency backup, they really mean that dude is an emergency backup. Foster, who had never played professional hockey, is a goalie in a Chicago beer league. When he waddled onto the ice, the Blackhawks were up 6-2 to two over the Winnipeg Jets with 14 minutes to go. And Foster somehow, someway, stopped seven shots, maintained that four-goal lead, and was feted afterwards as the number one star of the game. Here is Scott Foster in the locker room afterwards. So a few hours ago, I was sitting on my computer typing on a 10 key, and now I'm uh, standing in front of you guys. Just finished 14 and a half minutes of NHL hockey. <laughs> Did you get any advice before you went out? Uh, I don't think I heard anything other than put your helmet on. And, then, <laughs> and now I'm standing here. You see Joel Quenville just laughing as you were getting on the ice? I think I would too. <laughs> Joining us now is our in-house Hockey expert, our producer, Patrick Fort. Hello, Patrick. Hi, hashtag token hockey fan, I think. <laughs> that works, too. <laughs> you were telling us just uh, before we uh, started the segment that you could tell from watching Foster that he was an emergency backup goalkeeper, this, despite the fact that he kept a clean sheet. Well, it's not not so much that he's you know an emergency backup in quality, but just kind of the era that he played in. He played at uh, Western Michigan University. 15 years ago as a, a Division One college goalie. And as the game has kind of evolved, the goaltending specifically has changed a lot. And you could tell just watching them that he was way more upright. He, he stood up a lot more than a, a goalie that you've seen coming up in the past 10 years might. He didn't take up as much as of the bottom of the net. But like you said, it didn't really matter because he still made uh, seven saves. It's like if a straight-ahead kicker like uh, came on and replaced a soccer-style uh, field goal kicker. Yeah, I, has the game really changed <laughs> that much, though? Or was this just a 36-year-old accountant taking the ice in an NHL game? And when a 36-year-old accountant takes the field in any sport, he's not going to look as good as the actual NHL players or whatever sport they play? Well, I think so it, I think that's the distinction here is that, and that's what makes this so much fun, right? It's that this really is Plimptonian. I mean, this is a guy that you are literally pulling out of the stands to play in a real game. Yeah, and I think it can be both too, right? You know, he's, I would say, you know, even even in my, my experience playing, you know, beer league hockey that sure it's it's not professional, but you know, this guy played division 1 sports and I've played in beer leagues with guys on teams who like played at Notre Dame and they were really, really good, good. <laughs> even like 10 years out from college like sure. so to say that to come in and, you know, in a blowout game like that he wouldn't be able to at least not look competent maybe is kind of a a it's not surprising, I guess. Right. Well, me. and I think that's what I mean. My point is only that it, it re- further reinforces something that I think most fans don't appreciate enough is just that how much better the best players, the, the, the NHL, NFL, MLB, MLS, World Cup, whatever professional athletes are than really competent guys and women who played at a high level. So the thing that's really like odd here is that, um, at least to me, and maybe, Patrick, you can explain why this is wrong. It's like, why don't you just put in, like, how in baseball you just put in, like, a position player to pitch? There's not some, like, emergency pitcher where it's, like, some 
guy who played in college 15 years ago is like in the bullpen in case there's like some like horrible <laughs> like you know everyone in, on the pitching staff gets like salmonella or something like you would think that you would think that they could just like Bad put batch the, of sunflower seeds yeah something <laughs> like that you would think that they could just like put the goalie pads on like some fourth line defenseman or something like why do it this way well you know, I, I don't know if there's one specific answer to that, really. I think it's a combination of, like, you you only have a certain amount of time by rule to, like, get another goalie in there. So basically, the you know, if you had your fourth line forward or whatever, say he's going to be our goalie, you can't stop the game. But just think guy. of all the suspense that would create. It's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're put. They're they're and they're the putting footage? the and and you could like have them Bench like dra- you could have them dress on the ice like yeah. with a spotlight on <laughs> or in a special in a special like the penalty box. Yeah. You have a yeah. special yeah. box, another box that would be the emergency right. backup next to the box. scorekeepers. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's I think really it's probably one of those things that's just a relic of really old rules. I mean, there's rules now that if you say that all of the referees get hurt, both teams like pick a player from their team to joint like call the game wait is that for real yeah so it's a just kind of a a relic of an old rule i mean the emergency backup goalie is there kind of for whatever team needs it just because it's like it's such an obscure thing that he's there in case some team god willing gets to like their fourth goalie that they need in a game so scott foster could have been the emergency backup goalie for the winnipeg jets in that game even though he's from Chicago, he's not specifically the Blackhawks backup. It's just like one guy shared between both teams. Right, and I love the fact that NHL teams have this list of locals of of, of goaltenders, and some teams have an advantage, and the, their opponent obviously would have the same advantage that there's a minor league team nearby or there's a college nearby, and the college uh, goalies can play, and they don't lose their eligibility because amateur goaltenders. Don't sign a paid contract to do this. Yeah, Scott Foster's not getting any money. Right. It's but like a professional a... goaltender, if there had been a minor league backup in the building that night on call for both teams, he would have gotten $500 yeah. and a jersey. It's such a scam. I'm kicking myself because um, obviously the better analogy here, it's not a pitcher. It's Catcher. an emergency. No, no, no. It's an emergency backup kicker because you do see that sometimes in football games where – the kicker gets hurt, whether it's the place kicker or the punter. How could I and think of that? They have a you know a, a lineman or some somebody go out and kick the ball off or or kick a field goal. It's happened a number of times, so that is an instance where they could totally have an emergency backup kicker that's just like some you know some random could, podcaster. Like say. how far down the list do you think they would have to go in the greater Washington, Washington D.C. region for Dan Snyder to be like, we got to get Fatsis <laughs> on the phone. Maybe not that far down. As long as it was just extra points, they'd be fine. Well, we'll see. A guy I'd, lo- Squir- I'd love to see that. A guy on SI.com did propose having an emergency catcher rule for baseball. And yeah. I think the, the death factor there is probably much higher for, for, the, for the player. Though I must I say, know, like like facing down shot, a 90-mile-per-hour slap shot doesn't seem particularly wise for a, a beer league guy. Though maybe we're just underestimating the quality of beer league Hockey players. I think I think maybe in some places, like 
in Chicago, like I, I, that, that doesn't necessarily surprise me. I mean, even here in, in Washington, a yeah. lot of the top men's leagues are guys who either played high level junior hockey and played college hockey. Right. So and, and, and the point here is that a lot of people continue to play ice hockey into their 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond, whereas not a lot of former baseball players continue to catch into their 40s and 50s and beyond. All right. So this was the second time, at least um, in recent years, there were examples decades ago, but it's the second time in recent years where an emergency backup goalie got into a game. As we've discussed, it has to be like this crazy confluence of like multiple cascading injuries for this to happen. But two years ago, um, the equipment manager for the Carolina Hurricanes got in for just seven seconds or something like that. And that wasn't really an injury situation. That they just was wanted a, to... They wanted to give the guy a chance to do this. It we was, wanted to, it They wanted thing. to give uh, Jorge Alves a chance, uh, a chance to shine. Like, this was like 14 minutes. So this was truly unprecedented. Patrick, there's some really amazing CVs on some of these guys. You had a bank manager in Arizona... You had a, a vending machine filler. I like that guy. In St. Louis. And he had to dress to sit on the bench. This wasn't just the routine, hey, you're on call tonight, come and have a you know, a burger and fries in and the press be box in the building. and be in the building. This guy actually had to dress because someone got hurt right before the game, the vending machine guy. Yeah, my favorite part about Tyler Stewart, the vending machine guy, is that um he puts his equipment in his wife's car for every game. Just in case it's needed. And I think he's probably just going to do that. You know, this uh, Scott Foster situation is going to have all these guys like having uh, sugar plums and uh, and pucks dancing in their heads like yeah. maybe they weren't before. Yeah. I mean, it's it's he's now the uh, career goals against average and save percentage leader of the NHL, you know. Mm-hmm asterisk if you want uh, or not 14 minutes seems like it should be the threshold (laughs) and and against uh you know the winnipeg jets who they play to are at the top of the they're near the top of the league right now and patrick line is one of the best goal scorers right now so i don't think it's a any it's it's an accomplishment for sure i wonder if the winnipeg jets altered their strategy enough to take advantage of the of the emergency goaltender? I mean, is there anything they could have done to capitalize on the fact that an accountant was playing in, in, in between the pipes? I mean, I don't know. At that point, it was a kind of a blowout game. Um, and really, in comparison to a, a lot of other sports, I, I would say that hockey re- relies less on kind of set plays as it does sort of kind of habits and things that you want to at least try to do so maybe they said like oh he's he has short legs and maybe he like doesn't cover the bottom of the net as much as your regular six foot four nhl goalie does so try to make him move laterally and they can try to elevate the puck over his pads or something but, but they other, still have to get the puck into the zone right they can't exactly. pull their own goalie right you know and teams are so good at blocking shots nowadays that you you still have to Get your shot off, right? It's probably more about what the defense does to 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 accommodate mm-hmm. their yeah. accountant. It's this really odd thing. I guess this is this is my last point um, that it's this extremely specialized position, one of the more specialized in all of sports, and yet it seems like one where because of what you just explained, Patrick, with shot blocking, with occasionally just the difficulty. You know, you see teams like sometimes on the power play just don't even get a shot off, even when they have a man advantage like it's the combination of being extremely specialized and also you can kind of like hide someone in that role maybe more so than you can in other roles like I was just imagining if you had an emergency backup 
point guard in the NBA. I mean, it would just be like a, a slaughterhouse. I mean, it would, you know, you would lose like a a, a ten point or whatever lead in in a few minutes. I think, um, and you know, same in baseball. Like you couldn't put you could. I guess you could hide a guy like in the field, but you couldn't put somebody on the mound and expect to like hold even a large uh, lead if it's just like some like rando dude off the street. Right. And you'll see teams that are at the top of the league a lot of the time. Maybe they're not like the, a lot of times the goalies aren't the, the top guy necessarily. I mean, the Montreal Canadiens who are kind of basement dwellers right now, the season have Carey Price as their goalie is kind of arguably when he's healthy, the best goalie alive right now. And it hasn't helped him, hasn't helped the team that much this year. Patrick Fort, hang up and listen, producer extraordinaire, hockey fan. Hockey ref. Hockey ref. Thank you, Patrick, for uh, getting between the pipes. Anytime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A week ago, Linda Brown, the woman who was at the center of the landmark school desegregation case, Brown v. Board of Education, died in Topeka, Kansas at the age of 75. In its ruling in 1954, the Supreme Court tossed out the doctrine of separate but equal, declaring that to separate them from others of similar age and qualifications solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely ever to be undone. The Browns, who lived in an integrated neighborhood, hadn't actually been upset about sending their daughter to an all-black school. They preferred her to go to the all-white school because it happened to be closer to their house. In reading up about Linda Brown and Brown v. Board last week, I learned that black and white students did go to high school together in Kansas before the Supreme Court's decision. But Topeka High School wasn't totally integrated. Prior to 1950, white basketball players were on a team known as the Trojans, while black players were on a team called the Ramblers. Joining us now are two graduates of Topeka High School. From the class of 1948, we have a member of the Trojans basketball team, the former mayor of Topeka, Kansas, Bill Bunton. Bill, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be with you. And from the class of 1949, a younger man, <laughs> the team captain of the Ramblers, and the former water commissioner of Topeka, Jack Alexander. Jack, thank you for being here. My pleasure, my pleasure. I want to start with you, Jack. Give us a sense of what it was like to grow up black in Topeka in the 1940s. From what I've read, you, like Linda Brown, lived in an integrated neighborhood, and you went to an all-black elementary school, and at that time, movie theaters and other public facilities were segregated, right? All of that is correct. I grew up uh, half a block from a white school, and I'd, have to, I'd be less than honest if I didn't tell you that during my growing up years, I never even wondered why I couldn't go to Parkdale, which was the white school, which was a half a block from my house, 
but I went to Washington grade school, which was, oh, let me say less than three blocks from my house. But I never, never, never put those pieces together until after I was an adult. And Bill, what was it like for you growing up in Topeka in the 1940s? How conscious were you of the separation of the races when you were, when you were a kid? Well, we've got to recognize, first of all, that uh, elementary schools were uh, segregated. Uh, junior high schools were not. Uh, neither was Topeka High, except for uh, the basketball teams. And I, Jack has made it clear, and, and I agree, that if the basketball team had been integrated, I wouldn't have played. Now, you're the one that said that. I didn't say that. Now, I might have <laughs> thought that. But... <laughs> now, now, Topeka High School, gentlemen, was integrated from the time it was founded, and this surprised me, in 1871. But you said that the basketball team was one of the, if not the major, segregated aspect of the school. The cheerleaders also were segregated. Parties, I guess, were segregated, I learned from reading. And one of the reasons given for having these two teams was that the principals didn't want blacks and whites to socialize together because there were often parties, uh, school parties, after the Trojans basketball games. Jack, when you got to Topeka High School, you assumed that you would be on the Ramblers. There was there, this, this was something that, that black kids, I gather, expected and were looking forward to. So there wasn't, were you, were you ever thinking like, boy, if we were integrated, we'd be quite a good team? Uh, no, uh, and, and I assumed, even when I was in junior high school, uh, I was a decent athlete, and I assumed, or I knew I was going to play for the Ramblers. The Trojans never even entered my mind at that point in time. Uh, and just a quick bit of, of, of information, my dad and uncle worked for the school board, and they ran the gym where the Ramblers had practiced over a number of years. So I grew up in there playing and watching with the Ramblers. So when I went to speak high school, uh, I was ready for the Ramblers. And Oliver Brown, uh, Linda Brown's father, was a Rambler, right? Uh, yes, he was uh, before my time, but I knew uh, uh, Oliver Brown. And Bill, what was your experience with basketball in Topeka growing up? I didn't think about it at all. Uh, I was interested in sports, and in junior high school, we had black players and white players, and and all. Uh, actually, the school was fully integrated, except. Uh, for the basketball team because the track team which won the state championship had uh, a number of black kids playing on it uh, and the football team as well was integrated and it's my understanding that this black basketball team the ramblers had been something that had been started a number of years prior to our time and it had sort of started out as a social activity. Hmm. And, and I imagine, uh, I don't know whether you read it or not, but I think the first coach for the Ramblers was a white teacher at Topeka High School by the name of, I think his last name was Kistler. And, Bill, tell us about, uh, there was a, a guy that you played with who I think people will will remember uh, your also your 
college roommate. Tell us about him and what role he played in integration in Topeka. Well, you're talking about Dean Smith, the legendary, <laughs> the legendary court coach at uh, North Carolina, and he moved from uh, from Emporia to Topeka High School. Uh, to Topeka and attended Topeka High School. He was a year younger than I was. He was a junior and I was a senior. But uh, we were guards on the Topeka High School team. And I, I met him that during, early that summer when they'd moved from Emporia. And uh, we started playing one-on-one and we were both pretty competitive and uh, we just played and played. I just don't know, know, know how many times we'd find a, a, a gymnasium or somebody's backyard and play one-on-one. And it turned out that by the end of our senior year, we were the starting guards on a team that took third in the state. Uh, Dean was uh, a, a really good basketball player, but a better person. Uh, Correct. And... Uh, like as Jack knows why we when when I went to college why I pledged a fraternity there and <clears throat> we rushed Dean and he um, he pledged that fraternity as well and my senior year and his junior year while we were roommates I was best man at his wedding and he was a dear dear friend and what happened with Dean Smith at Topeka High School gentlemen was that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Dean was the quarterback of the football team, which was integrated, as we as we noted. Um, but he knew that the basketball team was not integrated. You said you guys finished third in the state. And Dean Smith later said, if we had had some of the Ramblers on our team, we could have been first in the state. So he pushed, from what I understand, to integrate the team after you had graduated. That's correct. Uh in fact, we had had a couple of, I say we, Dean and I and one or two other people had had a, a couple of meetings with E.B. Weaver, who was the principal at Topeka High then. And Dean, as Bill said, was just a hell of a guy. He, he was a principal person. And uh, I can recall he and I doing a article, I think it was for the Baltimore Sun one time, and we talked about this same issue. And the one thing that I will always remember is that one of his comments was, while certainly I was concerned about social justice, I wanted to win some more basketball games. <laughs> and, and to be clear that the school did provide the uniforms, the school did pay for your bus rides. And those bus rides often were incredibly long because you had to play against other black high schools. So you were traveling 100, 150 miles to, to get to games. Yeah, our 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 league played just uh, black schools. Uh, we played uh, those schools within the state, and then early in the year we would take a, a southern trip, and, and I can recall we went as far as Tulsa, Oklahoma, but we always played against black schools. And part of the travel that made it difficult was finding places to stay or places for the teams to eat when we were out on those trips. And as I've often said to the mayor, one of the things that I often looked for I was never able to locate was how the funding broke out for the Ramblers. Because uh, we had, in my opinion, some of the same kinds of, of, of gear 
and anything that the Trojans had, but there was never any any uh, uh, paper trail about dollars. Looking back, do either of you think, how did we not realize that this should have been integrated, that we should have had one team representing our school, that the, the status quo was untenable, and, and, and how important when Brown v. Board uh, was passed by the Supreme Court, when the ruling came down, how did you put that into your own historical experiences? One of the things that really grabbed me was that all of our, even when we had varsity after the football games or activities after the track game or any of those things, all of the social activities were still separate. Now, again, that, uh, I think, came down from that start of whatever that Rambler thing was as a social activity. Uh, I'm sure that as they moved forward and into their little varsities and activities, they remained uh, uh, socially separate. But the, the, you know, it's only after the fact that you look at these things. When I look at my 49th annual uh, world annual book, I can see that even the basketball teams, for instance, the basketball players, the white basketball players, all were individually photographed. The Ramblers were photographed as a team. The same way with all of the social activities that went on in the school. But I think uh, to say that that, uh, that caused a problem at the time, I don't believe it did. That was just the way it was, and that's the way that we... Uh, accepted and went along with things. And, you know, my three years at Topeka High School were as great as I think they could have been if I'd have been in an all-black school. The Trojans and Ramblers never played. Who would have won if if they had played? Well, uh, you know, we'll debate that, and, and I think we'll, we'll just say that it would have probably ended up in a tie. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he was elected to office so many times as water commissioner. Yeah, you guys are two. We got two politicians here, so I'm not sure if I can trust what either of you say on this uh, score. I, I, I learned from the mayor. I learned from the mayor. Bill Bunton uh, from the Topeka High School class of 1948. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. And Jack Alexander, Topeka High School class of 1949. Thank you so much. Really uh, appreciated having you on. My pleasure. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Now it is time for After Balls. Um, great interview. I thought. Yeah, love those gentlemen. And I said gentlemen like twice during the, <laughs> during the interview. My favorite part of the interview was just your respect for the elderly. Yeah. Um, well, I see it coming, Josh, and I think I appreciate that. Uh, healthy respect. I hope everyone calls me gentlemen. 
at some point. I'll call you gentlemen in a few seconds no, if you'd don't like. don't do that. No, please. Um, so mentioned some of the uh, members of the Ramblers. Jack Alexander was on the team. Oliver Brown, the plaintiff, and Brown v. Board, Linda Brown's father. Another guy who was on the team was Charles Scott, who was an NAACP lawyer. And he was one of the lawyers who helped win um, the case, the Brown v. Board of Education case. So we mentioned Oliver Brown, mentioned Jack Alexander, obviously. Let's give Charles Scott his due and after balls. Uh, Stefan, you're not a gentleman, but you are Stefan Fatsis. And what is your Charles Scott? I've got some advice today for all of our elementary school listeners out there, Josh, or their parents can pass it along to them. And here it is. Find an athlete whose birthday you share and then love them forever. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like if you were born on July 9th, O.J. Simpson. Yeah. Love, love him forever. For I love, sure. love them as long as they don't commit double murder. That's a good rule. I think a good line. Don't do anything else bad. A good line to draw. Just be careful. Love them while they're playing and not do anything wrong. For me, that guy was Rusty Staub, the redheaded, left-handed hitting Colt 45s, Astros, Expos, Tigers, and Mets outfielder and first baseman in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Staub died last week on opening day, just three days shy of his 74th birthday, which would have been Sunday. I don't remember when or how I figured out that Rusty Staub and I were born on the same date, a couple of decades apart, but I was definitely small. And it was probably from the back of a baseball card. The other day, I pulled out the cards that I didn't stupidly give away 30 years ago and went through the couple hundred or so of them one by one. There's some fantastic stuff in my shoebox, Josh. The classic Oscar Gamble airbrushed 1976 Afro card. Yankees take Gamble on Oscar that I mentioned when he died a few weeks ago. I've got a 1970 Luis Tiant on which I crossed out twins and wrote Boston. And I've got a 1976 Andy Messersmith printed before he won his landmark free agency arbitration and left the Dodgers for the Braves. There's a Pete Rose, a Joe Morgan, a Thurman Munson, a Ted Williams managing the Senators, and many more. During my peak card collecting years, Staub was an Expo, a Met, and a Tiger. But while I have a Boots Day card and two Bob Baileys and a Bud Harrelson 3D Superstars, the closest I come to a Rusty Staub is a 1970s Expo's team card. On the front, Staub is sitting hands on knees, third from the right in the front row, number 10. The guys in the second row have their arms folded. The back reveals that Staub led the 52 and 110 Expos in seven of 11 batting categories in 1969. One reason that I might not have a Staub card is that he refused to sign with Tops in 1972 and 1973, probably in protest over the meager pay for his likeness. And that was after union boss Marvin Miller had negotiated a better deal for players who just a few years earlier were signing their card rights for literally $5. But seven-year-old me didn't give a shit about the Expos, and 10-year-old me certainly didn't give a shit about the Mets. But the mere fact that Rusty Staub was born on the same date as I was made me like him a lot. April 1st is a pretty good birthday to have. People remember your birthday. Josh remembered my birthday. He texted me. Thank you, Josh. Anytime. It was even, I mean, only on your birthday, but anytime yeah, it's your birthday. Yeah. It was even better because Rusty Staub was born on it, too. But April 1st, Josh, 
is a lousy sports birthday. You couldn't do this in 1970, of course, but sportsreference.com makes it easy now. In baseball, Phil Necro is the only April Fool's Hall of Famer. Though, as Benjamin Hoffman of the New York Times noted in an excellent appreciation, if you consider that Rusty Staub reached base 4,050 times, 41st all time, you could make a good case for him. Anyway, back to April 1st, Willie Montanez, Manny Castillo, Rich Amaral, <laughs> Daniel Murphy. Don't, my, don't try to pretend like you don't uh, know how to pronounce Rich Amaral's name. Come on. My baseball birthday sucks is the point. No pro football Hall of Famers for me either, Josh, but Sean Taylor, rest in peace. And Brian Dowling, better known as the Yale quarterback who became BD in Doonesbury, and a couple of 1980s kickers who lasted only a little longer than I did. Hockey, a couple of Hall guys, Scott Stevens, someone named Ken Reardon who played seven seasons from 1940 to 50. Patrick is nodding. (laughs) Basketball, though. Basketball is definitely my best birthday sport. My starting five is Mark Jackson at the point, Norm Van Leer, really good shooter for the Bulls in the 70s at the two, Aton Thomas is my power forward, and he is my social conscience on my team. And I am stacked at center, so I'm starting Kevin Duckworth and Brooke Lopez. Sorry, Robin, your younger brother is a better player. Then I've also got, for my bench, I got a guy who was on the Sheboygan team in Wait, the NBA. do you have a small forward? No, I'm starting two centers. Oh, cool. Sorry. Great. I'm starting two centers. No, perfect. You know, I got bigs. I'm going big. <laughs> perfect. My front line is big. Do it. Okay. Um, for my bench, I've got a guy who was on the Sheboygan team, the name of which was the same as Washington's football team, so I'm not going to say it, in 1949-1950. Gene Williams, who played eight minutes of one game for the Kentucky Colonels of the ABA in 1970, registered zeros across the, the box score. Those guys can wear their period uniforms on the bench, which I think would be nice. And finally, I share a birthday with a guy who played one season, started only once for the Memphis Grizzlies in 2001-2, before enjoying a stellar European career with powerhouses Real Madrid, Dinamo Moscow, Benetton Treviso, and Panathinaikos of Athens. He has been the captain of the Greek national team, and he is now likely finishing up his career with his very first team, Ilisiakos of Athens. And he is Andonis Fotsis. Wait, do you mean Andonis uh, Fotsis? Andonis <laughs> Fotsis. Josh, this makes me unreasonably happy. Wait, did you just uh, find out that this guy has your birthday? I did. I just found out. What an amazing gift for yourself, from know, yourself. From myself, to myself, for myself. Farewell, Rusty Staub. Find yourselves a birthday athlete, everyone. Josh, what's your Charles Scott So for reasons I cannot recall, I found myself on the Wikipedia page that lists the lamest edit wars in the history of Wikipedia. Strap in because this one's pretty lame. Uh, At least a couple of them on this page are about wrestlers' heights with the site's amateur editors going back and forth about whether Andre the Giant was 6'10 or 7'1 or 7'4. That's good stuff. That's not lame. Um, But the one that caught my eye was the war on the FIFA World Cup page over who finished third in the first ever World Cup. In the semifinals of that World Cup, which were, uh, was held in 1930, the U.S. lost 6-1 to Argentina, while Yugoslavia lost 6-1 to Uruguay. I won't tell you who won the final because we're here to talk about third place. Um, I there, know who won the final. There wasn't an official third place game. Uruguay won the final. So that will not help us decide who finished third. Uh, now, in the group stage, the USA and Yugoslavia each won both their games, 
The U.S. scored six goals and allowed zero in the knockout stage, while Yugoslavia scored six and allowed one. So the U.S. had the superior goal differential. Uh, Now that brings us to the talk page and a section headlined, Please Leave USA and Yugoslavia Flags Alone, a section created two years before Chris Crocker pleaded for us all to leave Brittany alone. Um, So in the span of roughly two months on this Wikipedia talk page, that's where people go back and forth debating what the page should look uh, look like, um, a handful of users wrote roughly 9,000 words debating who uh, whether the U.S. or Yugoslavia should be third place in the 1930 World Cup. So here is a user named Jeweler. Uh, Jeweler writes, the bald fact is that in 1930, there was no decision about third or fourth place. Did the USA and Yugoslavia share third place because they had the same number of points? Did the USA get third because they had the better goal average? Goal difference is a more recent statistic, Jeweler writes. Or would they have made a decision based on the number of corners or free kicks or penalties or players sent off or what? The answer is that the question cannot be answered. Nobody got third place because the competition did not have any rules for deciding how. Then super sexy space monkey fires back. The bald fact is that there was a decision about third or fourth place, just no match for third or fourth place. Because the bald fact you don't seem to comprehend that has already been explained to you once is that every single nation that participates in a World Cup is ranked. Every single one, not just the top four. The bald fact is that you do not appear to read very well and you fail miserably to refute several good arguments, ignoring them at your leisure. I thought everyone on Wikipedia was nice to each other when they were creating these pages. But wait, here comes a user with the uh, mellifluous name 201.135.7.127. IP address pops up and says, put simply, it now appears to me that said criteria did exist in 1930. Here is further evidence adding to the mountain of proof that obliterates your argument. The USA was actually awarded the third place medal in 1930 on the basis of goal differential over Yugoslavia, according to the U.S. National Soccer Hall of Fame. Jeweler is not not taking it. Here comes Jeweler with a strong take. The U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame, of course, not being an actual place. (laughs) Goal difference is quite a modern invention, Jeweler says. It used to be goal average. Goal average was not applied in the World Cup until 1962. The link you provide is clearly an error. Oh, but wait, but Jeweler's not done. There is nothing to indicate the medals in the cabinet are anything more than commemorative medals other than a label that has already been shown to be an error. Boom. All right. It appears that Jeweler actually won this point about the, the bogus medals. Because super sexy space monkey, not as, not somebody who's prone to concede. Super sexy space monkey, kind of uh, he he comes in with backed off a, a little bit. Well, you'll see. Here's super sexy space monkey. I came here to get to the bottom of things, not to point my finger and make snide, sarcastic remarks That's to make did. to make others out to be fools simply because they disagree. Much as you have done and continue to do. It might give you intense pleasure to rub the truth in my face. But fortunately for me, the truth is all I wanted to see. God knows. It certainly never gave me any pleasure to prove Jeweler wrong with my data. I don't even know you. You are just another screen name on a public internet site. So this massive undercurrent of indignation you have towards me is rather dumb. Then there's like a little comment in brackets. 
gives jeweler authentic replica gold-colored plastic medal in honor and recognition of winning an inconsequential debate in an inconsequential discussion board with a perfect stranger. Boom, indeed. Things got things got personal on the talk page for FIFA World Cup circa, two th- circa 2005, 2006. Naturally, this did not end the debate with the same people arguing over whether to list the USA and Yugoslavia as, as simply losing semifinalists or as tied for fourth place or as tied for third place. Eventually, the combatants settled on listing the US and Yugoslavia as tied for third. It was a beautiful story, compromise on the internet, competing factions, listen to each other, come up with a solution that satisfies no one. But, you know, when are we ever going to find mutually satisfactory uh, conclusions? But then, Stefan, you thought thought this afterball was over. I did. There's a massive plot twist. In 2009, for reasons that are entirely unclear, as they often are, FIFA decided that it was possible, it was indeed possible, to retroactively determine a third-place winner in the 1930 World Cup. Oh, and if I know FIFA, I know which way this is going. That team was not Yugoslavia. If I know FIFA, <laughs> I don't know which way this is going. If you go to the official FIFA website, you'll see USA third, Yugoslavia fourth. The Wikipedia page now includes a footnote below the table of World Cup results. It says there was no official World Cup third place match in 1930. The U.S. and Yugoslavia lost in the semifinals. FIFA now recognizes the United States as the third place team and Yugoslavia as the fourth place team using the overall records of the teams in the tournament which makes no sense because they had the same record. But I'm not about to start a fight about it. Calm down. Calm down, jeweler. Calm down, super sexy space monkey. Congratulations, most of all, go to the United States of America for getting third place in the 1930 World Cup for basically no reason, which is a lot better than not making the World Cup at all. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Thank you to Danielle Hewitt for providing production help. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.